Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, Neil Garfield. This is Thursday, July 12, 2018. There are lots of defenses to foreclosures that are working and that have worked. Some have worked in the past and don't work now. I remember early on where show me the note was enough to get a case dismissed. That quickly went out of style. Hundreds of thousands of cases have been won or settled by those who choose to fight. Most of the cases where the homeowner has won are or has been put in a winning position are settled under seal of confidentiality. So the only thing you hear about are the millions of foreclosure cases that went by default where the homeowner did nothing or chose to do nothing. To win, you need information understanding, and a strategy based upon that in, uh, that understanding. You have to know what's missing from the claim that asserts foreclosure. Let me repeat that, because that's the essence of a good defense. You have to know what is missing from the claim asserting foreclosure. big mistake that people make is thinking they go into court and it's up to them to prove something. The only thing that, your only job as an attorney or as a pro se litigant is to reveal fractures in the structure of the case against you. Tonight, we talk about possible ways of using the current modification processes toward your advantage and maybe tilt the board back a little in your favor. Right now, modification, contrary to the sound of it, is not a negotiated process. The servicer, the self-proclaimed servicer, tells you what you can get and there is no way that they will even talk to you about negotiation, even if the case is referred to mediation. They show up at mediation with zero authority. And they offer, if anything, to give you an application for modification where you divulge all your personal financial information. Their offer is basically that they will, that they, whether they have the authority to do so or not, 
will consider your application. That's not an offer. You didn't need mediation for that. The whole modification process as it exists in foreclosures is an illusion. And it's also an opportunity to bring to the attention of the judge that the so-called bank or lender, pretender lender, is not playing by the rules. I like to reveal the authority of the lawyer and the servicer representative by asking questions like, are you prepared to accept a cash offer? The answer is always no, unless they say, well, if you pay the, uh, uh, the payoff amount, and if you ask them for the payoff amount, they'll leave you holding for 15 minutes while they go call somebody. They have no authority and they have no information going in there. So then I file a motion for sanctions saying that they violated the terms of the mediation order either the one from the Florida Supreme Court saying that the people showing must be decision makers or the court order from the particular judge in your particular case. When they make the offer that they will consider you for modification, ask them what the terms would be. They can't answer that either. When referred to mediation, always try to get an order from the judge commanding appearance at mediation. It will automatically have the language you need. And when you bring your motion for sanctions, sometimes repeatedly, because they still don't show up uh, with authority, this alerts the judge to the fact that the other side is playing games. If you're lucky, like I was in one case, they will do the same thing three times. At which point, I was able to say to the judge, getting under his skin somewhat, at what point do your orders mean anything? And he entered an order that was a, thousand, a minimum of $1,000 a day uh, sanctions and sent us back for mediation again. One caveat before we begin that discussion is that in many cases the offered modification is worse than the original loan terms. Plus, they're asking you to sign a document that says you're waiving defenses that you might have otherwise been able to use in litigation. If you can't afford the mortgage payments now, accepting a modification that is worse will only buy you a little time before they foreclose. It may seem like the ordeal is over, but it isn't. Tens of thousands of homeowners have reported to us that they are in conflict with their own attorneys about how to proceed vis-a-vis -vis litigation or modification. What I mean to convey here is the complexity of strategic legal decisions. Your attorney has not been bought off by the other side. Suggesting that is only going to cause friction between you and the attorney, and when you try to get another attorney, that attorney is probably going to hear that you accused the 
former attorney are being bought off. Suggesting settlement is not a betrayal. It's called doing the job of a lawyer. The justice system runs on money. If you want all-out war, then you must pay for it. If you can't or won't pay for it, then you must accept the probability of achieving less than your main goal. Unless you're willing to spend large sums of money on fees such that the attorney is being paid to do all the research, all the analysis, and all the strategic planning required to litigate, then you must accept the consequences of limited strategies in place of strategies that are designed for an outright win in the case. You might still win with a limited strategy, but the odds are heavily against you. Modification represents a backdoor to beating your opposition using the same defense narrative as you're using in litigation. Don't be annoyed with local counsel. We, as guides and consultants in litigation across the country, we always defer to local counsel because whoever that is, he or she knows more about the local politics and local atmosphere and what flies and what doesn't. They know more than what we do because we are not in every courthouse, in every county, uh, in every state. This is not a contest between you and the lawyer. You may be frustrated that they're not getting enough done, but the question that I frankly ask is, are you paying him enough for him to get more done? If local counsel deems it best that the homeowner consider settlement, then it should be at least pursued. But in the end, it is the homeowner who decides what to accept. Let me suggest a connection, possible connection, between modification and TILA rescission, that is, rescission under the Truth in Lending Act, 15 U.S.C., 1635. A modification usually does not require the same disclosure requirements as the origination of the loan. If it did, then the disclosure requirements would be required to have been met. And if that's true, then the right to rescind, the clock on the right to rescind starts up again. So most everything that involves changing the terms of a loan is, is referred to as a modification unless there's new money put into the deal. But... What if it's called a modification and it's still actually a refinancing? This is tough because there basically is no consideration from the supposed lender that we know about. But that's the problem. We don't know. If the so-called modification is in actuality a refinancing, then disclosure requirements apply and therefore TILA rescission until the rescission clock starts ticking on both the three-day limit and the three-year limit. 
The point is arguable. But despite the apparent absence of consideration, there might be a release and even satisfaction of the old loan if the so-called lender is changed. So let me put this into perspective. In its simplest form, if ABC Bank lends you money and later DEF Bank offers you a modification of the, a the, the loan you have with ABC and you agree with DEF on the new terms, etc., then the fact that DEF has not directly given money to ABC might mean that this is a new loan because undoubtedly ABC did not, would not give it up without having received something of value, and value is what is required under Article 9 of the UCC for enforcement of any mortgage or deed of trust. My argument is that virtually all modifications change the, the lender, not just the name of the lender, but actually change the lender. And the new lender used its ability as an intermediary to change the loan such that the new lender has gone from the one named in the closing documents to either a servicer or conceivably an unknown party. By the way, I strongly, strongly suggest that you record the modification as an attachment to what in Florida is called a notice of interest in real property. The other side won't want you to record it. And in some cases, I've seen language that prevents you from doing so, and then you have to go to local council and see how you want to deal with that. But if you do record it, it may add fuel to the argument that this was a new loan masquerading as a modification, thus triggering disclosure requirements. And of course, if there are disclosure requirements, then TILA rescission applies. The findings in a title and encumbrance report and analysis, we call it a TIRA with what we do at GTC Honors, um, can be used as a reason to demand, and this is the key, demand that the named trustee of the named trust, who is named as plaintiff in a judicial state, or the foreclosing party in a non-judicial state, that they must acknowledge the settlement and the authority of whoever is negotiating the settlement. And there's the reason that no bank would accept such a document if it was signed by your agent without additional contemporaneous documentation from you, the principal, acknowledging the deal and the authority of the agent to sign it. What is good for the goose is good for the gander. The banks made these rules. 
They should be the last people to oppose them. In my experience, they will oppose. They will refuse to give you the signature of, say, U.S. Bank or Bank of New York Mellon as trustee for the XYZ Trust and absolutely require you to accept the um, uh, signature and authority of Aquin or SPS or uh, Bayview or any number of other uh, so-called self-proclaimed self-serving servicers. When the intermediary servicers refuse to present any signature from any officer of the purported trustee of the purported trust that owns the subject debt, the owner, the homeowner, can go to court. This time, the homeowner is armed with inequitable conduct by purported agents of the purported plaintiff or foreclosing party. You would challenge their right to have acted the way they did and barring you access to an acknowledgement on a modification, say, that you've already accepted from the so-called principle that was named in the case. Now, if it's a judicial um, uh, case, the principle would, would be the plaintiff. If it is a non-judicial case, the principle would be the owner of the beneficial interest under the deed of trust. So either they're agents of the owner of the debt or they're not. If they are agents, it is custom and practice to require confirmation from the principle. The banks establish that custom and practice. And no sane person would do otherwise. If they are not agents, then they have no business collecting or enforcing the loan documents and no business presenting their own records as business records evidence for the principal without providing additional foundation, testimony, or documents. In court, the homeowner would say that the purported servicer has proposed a settlement or modification that the homeowner has already accepted. But now the, quote, servicer, end quote, refuses to have the plaintiff or the foreclosing party execute any document memorializing the settlement or modification. Instead, they are requiring acceptance of a signature of a person of unknown authority on behalf of a self-proclaimed servicer with unknown authority. And you could recite, and that's why I talk about the TIRA report, and there are others who can help you with this. Uh, uh, our TIRA report is uh, on lending lies, not living lies, lendinglies.com. And you would, in court, say that from reports from forensic experts show that none of the parties have any right, title, or interest in the debt or servicing. However, and this is the part that will get the judge, 
the homeowner is willing to accept the risks of dealing with an unauthorized entity as long as the named trustee executes the settlement, the modification, on behalf of the named trust, the plaintiff. Remember, the plaintiff is not the trustee, it's the trust. The trust is speaking through the trustee, but the plaintiff is not U.S. Bank. If you get sanctions, the sanctions theoretically would apply to the trust. We all know the trust doesn't exist, it has no money, has no bank accounts, and you're stuck. That's the whole idea of it. That's why the, the banks are cheering up and down how they created what they call these remote vehicles that don't amount to anything. A close examination of the proposed modification document will usually show that the creditor is being subtly changed. It's very subtle because what you've got is that it appears as though you have no change in servicer. But frequently after a modification, there is a change in servicer. But there's no change in servicer. But the modification agreement itself often does not refer to the trust or the trustee. In those cases where it doesn't, then you have a situation in which the creditor is being changed from the foreclosing trust to, in the best case, unknown, and at worst, the debt is being joined with the note and mortgage with your consent and changed to being presumptively owned by parties who, to the detriment of the real owners of the debt, have never paid for ownership or any rights. By the way, I'm uh, publishing this information as my blog article tomorrow morning. The defending homeowner would be saying that the interme intermediary with whom he or she has been corresponding is acting in bad faith or without authority, one or the other. They're either agent or they have no authority and they've made false representations to the court. The homeowner would be seeking relief in the form of a court order requiring the trustee as trustee for the trust, which appears as the plaintiff and foreclose or foreclosing party, to either sign the deal or reject it if the current servicer had no authority to offer it. Now that would be an admission from a third party that the servicer had no, no authority over the loan. Now, that might not be a blanket statement, but it's certainly an arguable point. The matter has been has either been settled or it hasn't. The only way it hasn't been settled is if the self-proclaimed servicer didn't have the authority to offer the modification. This is akin to cases in which there is a settlement and the attorney executes documentation or a pleading. Most courts 
will reject the acceptance by the attorney, even though the attorney is an officer of the court. The court, especially in foreclosure cases, will almost always require the signature of the homeowner. What is good for the goose is good for the gander. I said that before. Many courts have been burned by homeowners coming to court saying they didn't authorize the settlement. You're raising the same issue in reverse, where the true owner of the debt may come to court saying, I didn't authorize the foreclosure, I didn't authorize the settlement, or whatever. The fact that they don't do that this takes nothing away from the fact that that door is wide open. The purpose of going through all that is to force the other side to offer a better deal or back away. In other words, the goal is the same as when the case was in full litigation mode. I can virtually guarantee that the trustee for the Remick Trust will not sign a document in which they admit to being a player. The way it is set up now, the trustee's name, the so-called trustee, is falsely used with permission of the bank that's named as trustee, and the bank named as trustee can claim plausible deniability in any given case in the event that the situation explodes and there is liability for false claims. In all likelihood, the, trust, the trustee doesn't even have a retainer agreement with the law firm that is then falsely reporting that they are representing a non-existent client trust. Using this strategy may drive the opposition to the wall. I've seen it work that way, and I've worked it that way. They know that the trustee has no authority or interest in the litigation. They know that the trust is empty and most likely non-existent. They know that without the subject loan being entrusted to a trust, if nobody's holding the loan in trust, no amount of writing can authorize the administration of the loan on behalf of the trust. Because if the trust doesn't have it, it doesn't make any difference what's written in the terms of the trust or any documents executed by the trust. They know there is a potential liability for sanctions and punitive damages that could reach into the millions, but more importantly, reach the press where homeowners might just get the idea that maybe they can win and ought to win and maybe ought to fight. In my experience, the end result is usually using tactics exactly like this or close to it. The end result is usually uh, a, a reduction in the amount demanded that is so steep that the homeowner, it's like an offer you can't refuse. So the homeowner feels constrained to accept it in exchange for accepting the risk that the parties with whom he or she is doing business have no right title or interest in the loan. So by accepting that risk, you are giving consideration because you're putting yourself at risk for a rather large loss 
at least theoretically. If the opposition were to produce a newly fabricated document, the homeowner's position strengthens even more, I think. First, the homeowner can seek to confirm the execution of the document by the named so-called trustee on behalf of the trust. And second, the existence of a newly executed document may be used to argue that there was no privity or authorization before that moment when the new document was prepared, executed, and delivered. So I invite you to check out another one of my recent articles called Garfield Premises, and that um, I don't actually report all of them. Um, the title is 15 Assumptions That We Make That Show Up in Our Reports and When We Draft Ghostwrite Motions and Pleadings. Thanks for being with me. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.